Let's Talk PR and More. Public relations, media, publicity, integrated communications, marketing, digital, reputation management, and more. Let's Talk PR and More with award-winning PR strategist, Sherry Goldman. Hi, I'm Sherry Goldman, president of Goldman Communications Group, and welcome to my show, Let's Talk PR and More. Today, we're going to talk about fabulous women in PR, and my guest is Shelley Spector. Shelley Spector is founder of Spector & Associates, a B2B PR firm based in Manhattan, and she's also an adjunct professor at Baruch College, and she's been a past guest on Let's Talk PR and More. This past year, Shelley has given 50 online guest lectures about public relations for the public good, a book she co-authored, and she won the Distinguished Service Award from the Page Society. Shelley has truly made a difference in the PR industry and understanding the PR industry because she's also the founder of the Museum of Public Relations, the only one in the world. It's a great archive of our industry's history and a fabulous educational platform about the issues the public relations industry faces and the people who have been PR pioneers and trailblazers. And today I'm so excited we're going to talk about some of the fabulous women who have blazed the PR trail. So welcome back, Shelley. It's good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you again, Sherry. So I know that when I joined the PR profession from being a journalist, you know, P people thought PR was the velvet industry, right? Such a negative connotation. It was soft mm -hmm. and feminine compared to advertising, the real men went into advertising <laughs> and women went into PR. And all the PR pioneers we learned about, whether Ivy Lee or Edward Bernays or George Creel, or even the agency leaders at the time, mm -hmm. Edelman, Burson Marsdell, Conan-Wolf, Carl Beyer, Rubenstein, they were all men. So it was yes, really exciting right. to be and encouraging and fascinating to find out there were actually women around. <laughs> there were women around since the early part of the 20th century, believe it or not. Surprise. And, um, <laughs> and they, you know, and considering that three of these women that we know about were in, um, they were in the city. They were working with their husbands in large part, but think about how difficult it was. No women were in business back then. Right? Oh, no. In, in uh, Edward Bernays' case, his wife, Doris, was his co-partner. I didn't even know that, and I've studied him forever, and I teach him. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea that his wife was a piece of that puzzle. That's right, and not only that, she was a very important piece of that puzzle because she did all the writing, or a lot of the writing. She came up with ideas. She, um, you know, did do business with him, except she wasn't allowed in the room. That's so sad to me. But it's it's so emblematic of what society was back then is exactly. women were in the so back. To, yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to give these women whose names are Zelda Popkin, who we only recently found out about. She's actually the first professional women in PR that we know of. She started working in 1918 with her husband, Louis. Then there was Doris, 1919, with her husband, Edward. And then later on, we had Belle Moskowitz, who didn't work with her husband, but did some very interesting trailblazing things in political PR. Why aren't these women in, in the textbooks? Because their stories are really far more interesting than a lot of the men's stories. <laughs> And, and I guess they're not in the textbook because women were not really respected the same way. So I guess since we started talking, no no, 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 that's not the women are not in the textbooks because women didn't write textbooks. 
Oh, even sadder. Well, yeah, that's that's the way it is. You know, if you had women writing the textbooks from you know the 1980s, the women would have been in there. I think. Well, probably I. I- I would agree with you. I just think it's sad that people don't know about them and what they did. So let's, since we started talking about Doris Bernays, let's talk about her. She obviously, you know, what did she do? And and no, that sounds like a crazy question, but, you know, everybody knows Edward Bernays. Everybody knows the two-way conversation and his books and and the, the nephew of Sigmund Freud and all of his, you know, changing behavior or understanding people and psychological and we can go through his case studies but clearly she was a piece of that puzzle that nobody knows nobody knows because of the times as you mentioned earlier um, it wasn't proper for a woman to go into a professional meeting and there'd be all white men and unless the woman was there to take shorthand so she wasn't going to go into that room and act like she was a stenographer or a secretary when she created the campaign. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So how did they yeah. get the recognition? Did she create the they campaigns didn't. that we think Edward Bernays created? Did she create Some of them. Torches mm-hmm. of Liberty? Did she create Ivory Soap? Did she create Bacon and Eggs? I mean, those are the three most famous campaigns. Right. Well, um, I've come to think that she had a large role in their creation. However, I've interviewed... Her, one of her daughters, and she said, no, um, my mom did not create those. And uh, But I still think there was so much in, the, in all those campaigns that you mentioned that men would not know about, and especially men of those days who were, never changed the diaper. I mean, men only started changing diapers, I think, when women went to work. You know, they had no choice. They were there are themes in in all three of those campaigns that only a mother would know. Not only a mother, but a woman. If I think of Torches of Liberty and the campaign, which was for Lucky Strikes, and yeah. to get women were not allowed to smoke in public and how to empower women. But don't don't forget, Torches of Freedom took place in 1929, and it was just 10 years after. The amendment was uh, adopted to allow women to, no, I'm sorry, to allow women to smoke. This was the suffrage system, right? The suffrage movement that had been going on since the 1840s. So women were now finally being given the right to vote. Right. And now they were given the right to smoke (laughs) cigarettes eventually. Wow, we really Um, come a long way, haven't we? We we certainly have. And uh, but Doris herself was a suffragist and she used to be, you know, part of those campaigns. And, and, and she was also part of a society called the Lucy Stone Society, which advocated for women, independently minded women, to use their maiden names, to continue using their maiden names. And, and Doris Fleischman is better known than Doris Bernays. So she was the first woman in U.S. history to use only her maiden name, Doris Fleischman, on her passport. Wow, I didn't even think that was possible. I mean, when people in our generation started saying, we're not going to take our husband's names or we're going to hyphenate, there was such pushback. This is so many years before to work under your maiden name is crazy. 
that's right. And, and very so forward she, thinking, but I can imagine not not really thought of properly. Well, exactly. So what Doris had done was she wrote to the State Department, I understand, and she says, if you can give me some reasons why I can't use my maiden name. They had their first night together after they got married in the Waldorf, which was their client. And they signed in, you know, with just, you know, Doris Fleischman and Edward Bernays, and, you know, the front desk was appalled because it didn't seem like they were related it's a scandal uh, what a scandal and they got that in the press gosh so so eddie always had an angle did he want that was that the angle was was he looking for media related coverage of that well he was looking for it for the waldorf yes for the waldorf okay so not for his cause but for the hotel and his client I think that, he, you know, in some small degree, he was making a show out of it. But this was totally Doris's decision. But clearly and, someone had to call the media and say, Edward Bernays and Doris Fleischman right. are checking in. I don't think the New York Post or the Daily News, if they were there then, were hanging in the lobby to see who was registering for the oh, evening. Oh, right. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So somebody, you're right. Somebody had to call them, give them a tip. You know, get to the lobby of the Waldorf right away to see this couple checking in, going against all of the, you know, traditions of, of married people. And, um, you know, so he got he got into whatever newspapers there were, you know, the tabloids at the time. Remember back then there were so many more newspapers than there are now. Yeah, there was the Sun, the Tribune, there were a lot. And they were all tabloids right. for sure. Yes, yes. So that, you know, so Doris who um, was never allowed in the conference room, never allowed to meet clients, was allowed, of course, to raise the children along with two nannies. And uh, she was allowed to set up the dinner parties, right? Oh, That's good. Where, Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and at the party, she would be allowed to meet the client's wives if not the clients themselves. So I was just going to ask you, she wasn't allowed in the room for a meeting, but did clients know that she was involved? Did clients know that some of the thinking, the strategy into the campaigns came from her sensibility? And I'm kind of hearing probably not. I don't know. I think at the time they wouldn't know. And that's just the way it was. You know, um, I remember a time in my career where I had a, a woman who whited, whited out my name on, on proposals I had written. Ouch. So, <laughs> yeah, so it happens in the not-too-distant past, too. You know, with Doris, you think about those three campaigns you mentioned, bacon and eggs. It's a whole thing about having breakfast with your kids and your family and making them smarter and healthier and all that. Mm-hmm. That's not usually something that a guy thinks of. That is the underlying part of this whole thing is, is using peer pressure. So if somebody down the street was making a full breakfast of bacon and eggs and that kid was getting all A's in school, you bet every mother on the block is going to hear about this and start serving bacon and eggs. So that was a part of that campaign right. that used, um, you know, many hundreds of doctors to say that having a good breakfast in the morning is much healthier for you than having just a black coffee and a, and a hard roll. You know, I think, you know, there's definitely signs of Doris's influence in that campaign. As far as the ivory soap campaign, soap sculpting, 
Definitely. <laughs> because Cause men didn't any... bathe the children. So let's Absolutely face it. I mean, not. this was. <laughs> no men would be caught dead bathing right. their children in the 1920s. Nope. Nope. Definitely not. You know, when you hear him describe it on video, which you, you can just go into um, Google and find his videos that we shot. You will hear uh, Bernays talking about, you know, the one thing he knows about bathing children is that children hate soap. Children hate soap. It gets in their eyes. They don't want to use it. And so that was the whole, but, you know, did he know this from firsthand experience? Highly doubt it. Uh, yeah, right. And let, he heard it from screaming upstairs while he was downstairs, <laughs> you know, right, smoking right. a cigar or having a whiskey <laughs> or watch, doing whatever he did, reading his paper. Mm -hmm. Right, right. You know, you can find her in a lot of the campaigns and, um, you know, she was brilliant. I, I, but she is somebody who was also a tomboy, you know, an inner tomboy, uh, because when she was just out of school, she went to work for the Herald Tribune, and she, they said, what department? And she said, I want to cover boxing. Now, can you imagine a woman back then asking to cover boxing? They never had a woman covering sports, much less one covering boxing. And her father tried to talk her out of it, but she insisted. Wow. And I think she liked being the first. But she was so and true to surely. who she was. I love that, yeah. that she really was authentic and true to who she was. Um, exactly, exactly. And yes, she, she was very beautiful as well. And uh, But she was a true feminist, truly ahead of her time. Did people in her firm, because she worked with Edward Bernays, her husband, did they know that she was intricately involved? You say the clients didn't. I I'm curious in terms of, where, what was the role of women then? I mean, did they think she was the secretary or the office admin as well? I, I doubt that they did. Um, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I don't know for sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't know for sure. I mean, they would see her uh, writing, you know, composing on the typewriter. Okay. And the other the secretaries, the other women who were all secretaries, weren't composing on the typewriter. They were taking scribbled notes from a man and retyping them. Right, and everybody worked on a typewriter, so right. It That's depends right. on if, you know, that was the only method that people had. That's right. So, um, you know, very interesting question. Um, I will never know for sure. But, um, you know, I certainly think knowing what I know about Doris, and remember she had died, you know, many years before we... Uh, got to know Eddie. Uh, so we don't know. We can only hypothesize this about is, Doris. Should we be rewriting our history? Not rewriting it, but when we re look at the books to, to incorporate Doris, and we're going to talk about Zelda and Belle too, mm -hmm. you know, are we missing something? Because the textbooks I use today to teach, and I teach intro to PR and, and, and the history of PR, don't include her. And don't of include course. any they of these. Include. You know, I could say to my students, let's go look at the museum, which we do online. Mm -hmm. But the materials don't talk about women. And that's like the first women they really talk about a little bit. Ines Kaiser from your website right. is Betsy Plank. Right. It's really right. the first woman that is mentioned in a textbook. 
and mm-hmm. she's from the 60s. I think she headed the first woman to head the internal corporate communications department, and she was at Illinois Bell, if I remember correctly. Right. But she's the first woman, and now there's a Planck scholarship for students in mentoring, mm-hmm. which is a fabulous thing. But that's decades and decades later than yeah. the first women in PR. So you can bet that there were lots of women in between 1929 and the 60s. Right. The books also don't have Marilyn Laurie, who was the nope. first CCO, chief communications officer of a Fortune 100 company. So both Betsy and Marilyn ought to be in the textbooks, uh, you know, especially because um, they were so brilliant. They were trailblazing. It was extremely difficult to overcome the male, the very misogynist environments of the baby bell companies that. He was at and, right. and at the AT&T Corporation that Marilyn was at. She was always the only woman in the room. Um, but uh, and especially we now, most of PR is comprised of women. But they never get to read about other women in history. It's as if women were always, you know, behind the scenes, uh, maybe being a secretary. And then suddenly there are account executives and vice presidents and agencies. So I think that there will be a um, uh, an effort underway at some point to kind of make sure that all of these women and all diverse people, all people of color, are included in these books. So yes, you've heard of Inez Kaiser. She wouldn't be out there if the museum did not take the time to learn about her, to do an oral history of her over the phone, to get to know her family. Well, I should say for people who are listening who may not know, Inez Kaiser was the first female African-American to open her own PR firm. She was the first. And she she served national clients. Um, Right. But but literally the first. And honestly, Shelley, I learned about her from the PR Museum because she's not in any textbooks. And I've been teaching PR for a very long time. I've been in PR for a very long time. And I only learned from... I had a couple of my students had kind of picked her as the person they wanted to learn more about and, and find inspiration from. Wow. And, um, you know, because I send my students to the website, I said, find a PR pioneer and write about them and then tell me how what you learned from them changes how you think about the PR industry. That's right. an assignment. So usually... I must tell you, most students pick the video that's on the top. They can't pick Edward Bernays because we spend a long time in class doing him. But they, right. then they only pick the first on the list. And I'm like, there's Asian-American pioneers and there's African-American, this female. Right. But a few of them pick Inez Kaiser or have in the past. Now you have people higher up on the food, the list on the page so they don't get as far down. But um, they did find inspiration in her, especially since many of my students are students of color. Right, exactly. That's why we need her so badly as part of our history. When I went into this profession, and I know you did, it was the velvet industry. Women worked in it, but women were not the leaders. Even the firms I worked at, except for if you were related to a Finn, you were Mm -hmm. not. You might have been maybe a senior vice president, which could have been the highest you could have risen to, but the presidents, the EVPs of the firms were men. Certainly oh, the yeah. founders Absolutely. of the firms, the Edelmans, the Burson Marcellus, the Conan Wolfs, the Byers, the Rubensteins, we could go on and on and on, the short, were men. So yeah. 
they were white Jewish men, too. For the most part, (laughs) they were certainly uh, white. Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of these guys, uh, both Dan and Harold, came out of the service after having been a writer in the service. And so it made sense for them to go into PR, to open up a PR agency. And, you know, but they were, I don't know of any white women in that period of time who opened up a PR firm. It's possible, but I don't know of any. I don't. And I hope we find some. I, I hope we find some. The first woman, white woman, who op- headed a firm, would that be Barbara Hunter? Yeah, it would probably be Barbara Hunter. But if she's the first, that was in the 70s or the 80s. Well, actually, before that, she she and her sister were working for Dudley Anderson Yetzi. An advertising agency? Wasn't I don't know. Well, maybe it was both, both advertising okay. and PR. But they specialized in food, something that was not really that much of interest to the men working there. They eventually bought the firm out. She and her sister. So they were the first female business people, you might say. You know, just brilliant and fantastic. And Barbara can tell you stories that are really very funny about when she shows up at meetings at the client and they weren't expecting to have a woman there. You know, it's worth going and looking at these oral histories that we have up as well. Another interesting, very interesting person that I've met over the past year or so is a woman named... Lynn Choi started an age, the first Asian American agency. She's still alive. And a uh, very interesting story. So she started her agency up in 1984, and she helped the Asian immigrants understand what was going on in town and, and also try to translate things for them to understand. But she represented large corporations who were looking to her for advice on how to market to the newly arrived Asian Americans. I'm hearing from you is kind of the women when they went into or found their, I don't want to say even found their footing, but they took a sensibility that the men weren't doing, either targeting Mm -hmm. to a certain community or in in the case of even Barbara Food, things the men were not doing. That's right. Oh, oh yes. You You look back at Doris. At, at some point in their lives, and I think it was during the Depression, their family, so his two daughters and Eddie and Doris, moved into the penthouse of the Sherry Netherland Hotel. Nice. Yeah, very nice. And they had 14 staff members. <gasps> I don't mean in their company. I mean at home. Wow. They had, yeah, they had a chauffeur. They had nannies. I guess PR had, paid good back then. <laughs> Yeah, and I even think that that was, you know, they were getting, they were doing very well during the Depression. Anyway, talking about women. No, you need women in an office, say you need men. I mean, today we have the opposite problem because men are not going into PR. I bet you that in your classes, you can count on one hand the number of guys. Yeah, I mean, where I teach now at City College, it's an ad PR major, so it's a little more mixed. So I'm going to say my mix is like 65-35. When I taught at LIU Post for a lot of years, I mean, it was like 5% men at best. So it's still thought of as a female profession. But again, it goes back to what I said initially, not a good connotation. I don't know why. Men are more driven to advertising. I don't know if it's more powerful or 
you know, clearly the role models we've been studying in PR have been men and not women, but yet it's where women gravitated to. Well, this is only a recent phenomenon. When I got into the profession in the late 70s, I was the only woman around, and especially because I was in a niche part of PR, which was investor relations and financial services. That was a male-dominated discipline. And I really did not see other women at all. And uh, except if I went to a, you know, publicity club lunch or a PRSA, uh, I really didn't see other women until when I went to Hill and Alton and I had a female boss. The, uh, the first business owner I knew was Amelia Lopeson. And I thought that was something, uh, you know, and she was you know, considered one of the pioneers. But but she was partnered with, with Art Stevens, right? So was yes. it because she was a partner, male, female partner? I mean, Art's still no, one of the... No, she started out on her own. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. So she started out the, the Lopesons Agency, something like that. And Art started out with the Stevens Agency. Stevens PR, it was called. And then Amelia realized she needed a guy. You need, she needed a guy for credibility because most of the clients were men. How and crazy. And it was difficult. Yeah. So she, so she merged with, with Art. That's what you had to do. But back then, I think uh, it was 80-20, but 80% men, 20% professional women. And then it reversed in the 80s and 90s. I don't know why. This is a question I've been raising. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to figure that out today, then, in other words. No, no. no. If any guy is looking for a good major to get into, PR is it. Because uh, men are coming in at a premium. I want to talk a little bit about Zelda Popkin, because you had said that you had recently just found her, and she was another hidden gem, and I want to make sure while we're we're still talking that we get a chance to talk about her. Yeah, I'm currently reading her biography that was just published by her son, her grandson. And how this all started was um, her grandson, who's the chair of the history department at University of Kentucky, calls and, uh, you know, to find out, I speak to him and I, he asked me, do you have anything on my grandmother? I said, who's your grandmother? <laughs> Zelda Popkin. First, I just love that name. I mean, right? It's perfect. How classic, classic New York Jewish can you get? That's it. And, uh, <laughs> right? Zelda Popkin. And um, my own mother was named Zelda. I never knew other Zeldas, and so it was refreshing. So we had, you know, not only do we have nothing on her, I had no, not, I never heard of her before. And I said, oh, my God, what an opportunity. So um, I've done some interviewing on him and with, with him, Jeremy Popkin. And uh, Rachel Kovacs, who you, you may know, uh, has done, an, you know, has done some research and she presented it during our webinar. And um, they mostly handled uh, Jewish related organizations, nonprofits, because during that time, uh, a lot of American and Jewish American boys were going into the service and they needed help when they came home. And so a lot of what they were doing was, you know, Jewish veterans kind of work. Oh, interesting. I believe, yeah. Um, and they also handled the Jewish people who founded department stores. <laughs> and if you look at the histories of department stores, they were all Jewish. Bloomingdale's, Macy's, um, right? Right. And Bergdorf's. So they they kind of stuck with their own people. They didn't venture out to the to Chicago 
for big, you know, consumer brand companies. Um, they stuck in their niche, and then came along, you know, the Bernays clan, or Bernays husband and wife, and you know, they represented every major brand during that time that you could think of. Oh, absolutely. Um, they had the big ones. Right? So Beach Nut right. and, and all of them. Yeah, Lucky Strikes. Uh, I mean, you know, right. Philip Morris, all of that. They they had the best, the big brands. That's right. And now Bell Moskowitz uh, started up here from 1926, her own. So if you, if you look back in history, who was the first woman to start her own PR firm? It would be Bell. And one of her clients was the real estate company that built the Empire State Building. And what was wow. going on, yeah, what was going on is that people, when they walked on 34th Street or 5th Avenue, were afraid, they would cross the street, they were afraid that the building would topple because <laughs> it was so big. They'd never seen anything like it. So um, what she did was every week she would call photographers or, or journalists up to the latest floor that they had built to show pictures and to, you know, show the accounts from these reporters about how stable the building was. How smart. Yeah, very smart. And then after that, she started working for a politician you may have heard of named Al Smith. Sure. Yeah. So she worked for him. And so she was the first woman to work in political PR. And it's interesting that somebody like Al Smith, who could have had any guy doing this for him chose a woman I'm, I'm i'm flabbergasted by that actually to hear you have said that because i'm surprised considering where women's women's stature was we've been having that whole conversation to have chosen mm-hmm. a woman to do it instead yeah. of a man who maybe had a wife yeah. who was working with him on the side kind of yeah yeah i mean it, it is flabbergasting when i, when I first heard about her and, and studied her uh i was shocked that this went on in the 1920s. I mean, you, you still hardly see women as political consultants today. Well, I'm heartened to know there were women in PR. I just think they're the best kept secret, and we just have to make sure people know about them because I do think it's inspiring. I do think it's important. So you and I could talk about this forever, but I think we're out of time. Okay. I want to thank you so much for being here again with us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Shelly. I'm Sherry Goldman, and that's Let's Talk PR and More for today. You can find more information about the show and about me at Goldman Communications Group's website, www.goldmanpr.net. Thank you again for listening today. Look forward to talking PR and more with you all again next week.